Good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Trust you are doing well this morning. My name is Brandon Ziski, the lead pastor here. Um, I want to do something probably a little unconventional. Um, I just feel really um, pressed upon my heart that I just want to spend some time praying before we jump into the Word this morning instead of going through a whole list of announcements and kind of recapping where we've been and showing you where we're going. I just really feel the need to, to pray. And so as I pray, you can feel free to pray along with me. I'm, I'm basically going to be praying on my behalf. And as I pray on my own behalf, hopefully that'll be on your behalf as well. But I don't know what it was, but there's something about that song we were just singing, just give me Jesus, that is exactly what my heart needs to hear this morning. My heart feels heavy looking at things, you know, like just thinking about my colleagues, my, friend, my friends, my family and, and the world and thinking about the church. My heart is just saying, yes, Lord, just give me Jesus. So, Father, we, we come simply. Lord, I come simply this morning. Lord, I don't want to come in any kind of pretense trying to be something I'm not. Lord, I know the only thing I have to offer is you. So Lord, you are the one who always leads to life. You're the one who always leads to all things that are good and well. Lord, my heart needs that. So Lord, would you do it again? Would you give us a glimpse of your heart again? Lord, would you remind us of what this is all about? Again, you are so good. And Father, I ask that this morning, that not only would we, but I would taste and see again your goodness. You are beautiful. You are more than enough. Your word is true. Your word is life. Where else shall we go? You alone have the words. Wherever we are at this morning, whatever burdens we carry, whatever joys we bring in, whatever sorrows we bring in, you alone have the words of eternal life. So here we are. Would you speak, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in this series called Rethinking Religion, and we're asking some rather simple questions. We want to get back to the core of who we are. You know, try to go, okay, what is Christianity? Is Christianity a religion? And if it is, what sets it apart from all the other religions? And last Sunday, we asked a simple question, and it's a very important question. Why do we go to church, right? Why do we go here? Like, what's the point of coming to church on a Sunday morning? You know, there's so many people in our culture that would just immediately equate themselves as Christians because they go to church. Like, that doesn't mean you're a Christian just because you, you go somewhere or you attend somewhere or you're a member of some church or denomination. We started to ask that question, why do we primarily go to church? And we looked at Jesus and we looked at the early church and we understood very clearly that the church in, it, in its most raw and beautiful form is just to come to learn how to love God. Like, we love because he first loved us. That's why we come. We don't come to do all the religious performances and rituals and do the offering and sing through songs and have a 40-minute sermon, hopefully, and then sing another song and have some announcements and pray and get out so we can eat lunch and watch the football game, all that kind of stuff. Like, no, we come here simply to love him because it's his love that completely has captured and captivated our hearts. And so we want to learn to love him. 
And so we're devoted to him. We're devoted to each other. We're devoted to just singing our hearts out in song because it was a gift given to us. That's why we do this. But this morning, I want to talk about the heart. I really want to get to the core of it because like, yes, we can come to church and yes, we can do all sorts of things. And yes, we come here to learn to love him. But listen, we can't love him until our hearts are completely exposed before him. That's what I want to talk to you this morning. I remember um, when I was in college, I learned how to play guitar when I was in high school and I kind of gave it up. And so when I got to college, it was like every guy on my dorm floor played guitar and I don't know what it was, like Dave Matthews is kind of a big deal when I was in college. And I don't know if it was just because like if you play the guitar and you're a guy, like you'll get the girls or something. I don't know what it was. Like I just started, I was like, hey, I'm going to pick up the guitar again. I loved blues. Blues was like my soul. Jazz was part of my soul, not like JJ. You know, he like he's Mr. Jazz Man. Like he's got it. But like I loved U2, U2 fans. Like why don't they ever come to Austin? Like, someone should deal with that, right? Like, you 2 like, The Edge, I loved his guitar playing. Stevie Ray Vaughan, right? Like, I, I love Stevie Ray Vaughan. And so, I, like, I tried to, uh, like, copy my guitar playing to, like, them. I could get by. I wasn't great, but I could get by. I could fake it. I joined some bands and all this kind of stuff. But what I really wanted to do is I wanted to become a singer-songwriter and kind of make my way on the scene. And so, um, this is kind of embarrassing, but it's okay. Junior year in college. I got the opportunity to work at um, a Young Life camp called Malibu Club. Malibu Club, if you're familiar with anything with Young Life, Malibu Club is like the prestigious Young Life camp. Like, you got to have a waiting list to get there. I got the opportunity to go there for four weeks. And before we went there, they said, can any of you guys, any of you college students play guitar and you have experience? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to bust out on the scene right now. Like, I just, I took it. I was with it. But um, here's, here's what happened was the guest artist was Brandon Heath. Okay, now you got to understand, Brandon Heath, like some of you don't know him, that's okay. But Brandon Heath at that point, he wasn't a big deal. He was just kind of getting his way started. But I, I knew, I, like this was the first time I met him. So I was totally ignorant, but I was just like, I get the opportunity now to to be on the same stage, to be his lead guitar player. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm better than he is. Like, my songs are better. My voice is better than him. I had people in Winona, like, back home, good friends. And this is, they lied to me, but they were good friends. They said, oh, yeah, Brandon, you can sing. And I, it just totally fueled my ego. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I somehow finagled my way to get into the set where I can sing a solo in front of 400 high schoolers who were in awe of Brandon Heath. It was recorded. Evidence is destroyed. But let me just put it this way. I can't sing my way out of a garbage bag. I am literally the worst singer. Actually, no, my wife is worse than me. I'm better than her, but I'm still a horrible singer. I know that because my daughter tells me that. Like, you're, you're bad, but you're better than mom. So I'm like, okay. I'm a horrible singer. It was absolutely embarrassing. I remember singing this, and, and like, the kids, like, all 400 of kids, they were high school students just staring at me like, what are you doing? And then I, like, I was like, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. And, like, and I saw myself on the video because we did a highlight thing at the end of our time. And I was just like, I was so mad at my friends. I was like, why didn't you guys tell me I was horrible? I, was, I sat there and I was completely exposed as a fraud. I can't sing. I wish I would have known it before it was too late. Folks, 
That is all of us without Jesus. We all think we can do life. We all think we got it together. We all think we know what's right. We all think that we know the best way to live this life. We think we know it all, but the reality is, apart from Jesus, there will be a day you're going to stand in front of 400 kids, you know, hang with me, illustration, and you're going to be completely exposed as a fraud. That's the reality. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we have created so many religions. And that's why we go after so many things in this world. We try to satisfy this this angst, this nagging, this desire, this pull, this tug in our hearts to fill it with something else. And we're just trying to cover ourselves to find a sense of value and worth. And we're like, listen, we're good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And there's going to be a moment where it's going to be too late. And you're going to realize, whoa, I'm not. And that's what I want to talk to you this morning You've got to understand that apart from Jesus Christ, you will never, ever be able to stand before God. You will never have the fulfillment of those desires and those longings that sit in your heart. Now, before I can convince you of all of this, I I want to point out two very important doctrines that we just need to understand that the Bible teaches clearly, and, and I would even argue that you don't even need the Bible to understand these two important truths, okay? Like, listen, first and foremost, we are all primarily worshipers. We do this extraordinarily well. We worship like no other. We give our hearts and allegiance to something or to someone. Like, that's who we are. We are created beings. We don't find fulfillment and purpose in and of ourselves because we were created. There's a longing, there's a natural desire to find that fulfilled in the one who created us. But the reality is we don't look for that one because our hearts are completely dead and we don't go off looking for God. We don't go off looking for that. So that's why we just start to fill it up with all sorts of different things. So think about it this way. I try to go, okay, how can I simply define this point? And I want you to hang with me here, okay? Basically, it's this. We worship whatever we consider to be most essential for life and happiness. That's what we worship. Whatever you feel like you can't live without, Like, whatever it is that shapes your attitudes, your behaviors, your schedules, anything that you're even willing to compromise in order to get, like, that's what you worship. And this opens up Pandora's box, doesn't it? Because that means we can worship almost and literally anything and everything. And in this room, if we were to be honest, apart from Jesus, some of us are like, yes, we love Jesus, we worship him. But if we were to be honest, we have so many idols We go after so many things. We long for so many things. Like, I remember one time asking this question. I think I might have asked it here at Austin Oaks Church. Like, which one would cause more stress in your life? Which one would terrify you more to realize that you have absolutely no more money or that you no longer have Jesus? And if we were to be brutally honest, I think some of us would be like, well, I know the right answer. But this, whoo, like, like to be alone the rest of your life or to have, like, like there's so many things that we just go after. 
We've got to understand this. And we say, like, religion has this phrase, like, we give glory to. Like, in Christianity, there's this phrase, like, give glory to God. And if we understood the Hebrew, the word glory, it's the word kabod, which is heavy. So we give weight to something. Like, when we say give glory to God, it's like we're saying we're going to give him the weight. It's, it's going to influence my beliefs, my thinking, my behavior, my schedule, my motives. It's going to influence all of that. So literally, just think about it. What in your life do you give extraordinarily weight to? What do you give extra time and attention and influence to? Because whatever that is, that's what you worship. Whatever you think you cannot live without to bring fulfillment and joy in your life, that's what you worship. And that is what we ultimately think is what will get us by. That's a scary thought. Because ultimately, here's the second thing we need to understand. We were created to worship God and God alone. Like our hearts, like Augustine says, is like our hearts are restless until we find our place in him, right? Like our hearts are longing to be filling itself with something, And we were primarily created to worship him. He created us. Our lives are best. Our lives are full of joy, full of peace when we're worshiping him, when we're allowing him to control everything. And everything that he is influences us. We were created to worship him. But the problem is, is that we are sinful people and our hearts don't go after him. So what do we do? Like, just, like, we, this is what I say. It's like, you don't need the Bible to necessarily show these truths. Like, just think about your own life. Look at the world around you, the disaster, the pain, the calamity, and all the issues, marital issues, societal issues, religious issues. All of that is due to a worship problem. Everything. You see it. So what do we do if we were created to worship God? Like, like, okay, aren't all gods created equal? No, we talked about that last week. Jesus is the only way. Well, isn't that arrogant? No, it's grace. The fact that he would say, this is the way to it. All other religions are about what you can do, what you can do, what you can do, what you have to earn, how you got to perform, what you got to look like. Christianity says you don't have to do anything except receive it through the gift of faith that I'm going to give you. I did it all for you. So I want to show you something. This goes all the way back at the very beginning of our story. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read the first seven verses because I want us to see something here. Because there might be something here that I'm not sure some of you have gotten this. Maybe you haven't heard it this way before. But this is so important for us to understand the gospel. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent was Satan. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened. Look at this. Underline this one. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The devil enticed Eve and ultimately Adam to disobey God's command, which protected their freedom, which protected their heart, which protected the ability to worship him and to live in complete unity and harmony with their creator. Prior to this time, Adam and Eve lived completely dependent off of God. If God said this was good, it was good. If God said this was bad, it was bad. They lived off of God's standard. In other words, they were God-referential. They were looking to him to tell them everything and anything. They were completely dependent upon them. He was going to be the one that was going to instruct them of what was good and evil. But they were tempted to be like God. Now, that thought never crossed their mind until that moment. And when that temptation came in, it stirred up this discontent inside of them. Oh, we can be wise? We won't die? We can be something greater than what we are? And so the moment they ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, yes, they literally became like God. And here's how they became like God. They took it upon themselves now to judge for themselves what was good and what was evil. No other person in this world has that right besides God alone. God alone can judge what is good and evil. But this temptation now created a sin, a chasm between them where they're like, you know what, I'm going to be God. I'm going to choose what's good and what's evil. And so instead of being God-referential, they became self-referential. They started to decide what was right. They decided to decide what was wrong. They decided to decide how to get right with God. They started to decide what was needed. That messed it all up because look at the first thing. What was the first thing they saw? was the first thing they said the moment after they ate of the tree never crossed their mind before fascinating they were thinking about themselves all of a sudden they created their own standards nakedness not good god never told them that why is that a big deal I'm going to show you. Because before this, okay, let me, let me back up a little bit. We would do exactly what they all did. Now imagine you went to Costco. Hopefully this is just a dream. Imagine you went to Costco, and all of a sudden it just dawned on you, you're naked. What would you do? I hope you would instinctively get some clothes. Right? Like there's, like, oh my goodness, I got to clothe myself. I got to cover myself. What were they clothed with prior to this? What were they covered with prior to this? God's love, God's acceptance, God's goodness, God's care. They didn't need to worry about any of it, but the moment they chose to take matters into their own hands, they took that off and put on their own covering. We've been doing that ever since. That's why they did what they did. They put on fig leaves. Why do they put on fig leaves? To fit, simply feel more acceptable. Because in my guide, in my world, in my standards of what's right and wrong, this is wrong. And so I got to cover it up to feel right. Who decided this? 
Was the fig leaves God's standard or their standard? Did God tell them, okay, now get some clothes? Or did they? They did. They did. So right here is what we all do, and we've been doing it ever since the very beginning, is that we all try to cover up our nakedness. We do not want to be exposed before God. We don't want our hearts to be laid bare. We don't want people to really know everything. That's why we really like the darkness, if we were honest. It goes all the way back to this very moment. And so that's why I want to say this. All of our religious efforts are just fig leaves. They're just covering up our fear of being exposed. It's like, oh, this isn't right. So listen, this is what is going to make me right. So this is how I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to be about. All of the religious efforts, all of it, are just fig leaves. Verse 8. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I ask myself, have they ever done this before? Why, all of a sudden, are they now terrified of God? But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? As if he didn't know, right? Like, it's just... And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Here's the question. God said, or asked, who told you that you were naked? Who told you? The only answer they could give is, I told me. How many of you have ever sinned? <laughs> I just realized how dumb that statement was. How many of you have ever sinned and immediately regretted it? Like, how many of you have, like, sinned and you immediately wanted to go hide? You're like, oh, my goodness. Nobody can know. This reminds me of when I was a little kid. Um, I was, like, eight or so. My brother and I were outside, and... Um, I don't know why. I just decided to hit stones with a tennis racket. You know, they go a long ways. And my brother thought, hey, this looks like fun. He did it. First hit. Goes right at my neighbor's window. He immediately, because my brother is like, was the good kid of the family, like, did nothing wrong. He immediately ran and hid in the closet crying. I laughed. I thought that was funny. Right? Like, he just had this, like, instinct of, I did wrong. I got to go hide. Like, that's what we do. Like, we've done something wrong. Um, instead of hiding, we, we cover it up. That's our hiding. And when we cover it up by either pursuing certain desires and pursuits and money and wealth and status, relationships or whatever it is, or some of us just simply cover it up by being religious and being really good. And I'm a good Christian. I'm a good person. I've done enough. And so I'm actually covering up. But the reality is God's like, no, I got to expose your heart because you need to see this before it's too late. Because all of our efforts are just fig leaves. This is not a game of divine hide and seek. This is God's grace saying, listen, who told you that you were naked? I know who told you. I know you did. And listen, I need you to get right. I need you again to live by my standard. And right here in verse 15, we see the first glimpse of the gospel that Jesus is going to come. And he's going to make all things right. Who told you? 
that you were naked. They did. We do the same thing, if we were to be honest. And that's why I just love that song this morning. Just, just give me Jesus. I don't, I'm tired. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm tired of trying to live this way. I'm tired of going after these things. Just give me Jesus. How many of you have ever had that really annoying check engine light show up in your car? <laughs> like, that thing is annoying, right? Like, there's so many times you're just like, oh, it just goes on. You just ignore it, right? But, like, there's so many moments in our lives where it's like God gave us these warning lights on the dashboard of our heart. Kind of like you, you got to check the engine. You got to pop open the hood. You got to look. I mean, this is what God does. He wants us to come into the light. That's why he went looking for Adam and Eve. Like, where are you? Where are you? In other words, like, check engine light. There's a warning going on. I remember one time, um, early on in our marriage, we had this really small gray Saturn. And it was really a fun car because it felt like a go-kart. But this thing had, like, 500,000 miles on it. It was old. And the check engine light came on. And, I, you know, me just being super lazy, I was just like, it's not a big deal. They always come on. I'll just ignore it. We just changed the oil. Everything's great. And I'm not going to tell you all the circumstances that happened that it's going to lead up to this because it's really embarrassing. But within um, a few days after that check engine light came on, I decided to ignore it. The engine blew up. Literally. Folks, the gospel the nagging in our heart, like realizing that we're trying to cover ourselves, the fact that we're afraid of the darkness. Listen, all of those things, those questions, that's like God saying, I'm flashing the warning light in your life. Please notice, please pop open the hood. I want to talk to you about your heart. Let me deal with that. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you two characters in the New Testament that covered themselves up. One covered themselves up with religion. Another covered themselves up with relationships and sex. And I want to show you what Jesus did to both of these individuals and why this matters and why this sets Christianity apart from all other religions. If you could, turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, like if, if you have like not read your Bible in a long time, or maybe you never have, which is, you know, okay, grace extended, absolutely. Read the Gospel of John. It's a powerful letter. John was one of the disciples and early apostles who was with Jesus. He was given the nickname, the one whom Jesus loved. And the heart of the Gospel of John is a really beautiful verse in John chapter 20, verse 31. This is why John wrote this letter. These are written. Why? so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Like, this immediately starts to set everything else apart. It's like, listen, I'm, I'm writing these things about Jesus, and he's just telling them stories about what Jesus did and what he taught and what, what happened when people encountered him. He's like, we, I'm writing these things to you so that you can see Jesus and have him like look at your heart, get under the hood with him, and he's going to change your life. I want you to believe in him. Not a bunch of rules, not a religion, not a denomination. I want you to believe in Jesus. And so we get these characters that encounter Jesus. 
And in John chapter 3, we're going to encounter a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Now, some of you are already like, you just go, okay, John 3, I already know where this is going. John 3, 16, we might see the sign today at football for God so loved the world. But uh, we got to understand the context of that passage and where it's sandwiched between these two stories because John had a specific reason for writing it the way he did. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I want to stop right there. Nicodemus, we're told, like John wasn't, okay, like get this, John wasn't even at the scene. So how did John learn about this story? Probably by Nicodemus, which is really cool. Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. He's probably like the best of the best of the Pharisees. He's one of the rulers. He's got status. He's a good guy. Like people look up to him. There's a lot on the line here. Pharisees were kind of the religious gatekeepers of the Judaistic community at that time. They didn't really take too lightly to anybody who is like coming in as a rabbi, new teachings, and even making messianic claims. Jesus was causing a stirring. Some Pharisees didn't know what to do with him. Some were like, don't like him. He's the son, you know, maybe there's something different. No, no, he has a demon and all this kind of stuff. And Nicodemus has a lot here. But something was stirring inside Nicodemus because he came at night. Like, okay, you, you got to like read these fine details and go, why did he come at night? Maybe he was afraid that his friends, his colleagues would see it. Like what would happen? Like, oh, you're talking to Jesus. Why did you go talk to him? What were you looking for? What were you doing? Are you going to become one of his followers too? Da, 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 da. Like, who knows? Maybe he was just super embarrassed. Or maybe he had an experience like many of you have. I know I've had, where you're just sitting up at night, and it's as if God is keeping you awake. Something's nagging on you. A question that isn't answered, a desire that has gone awry, or something is just like you just can't sleep. and almost feels as if God has you awake for a reason. And he just sit in there. I just imagine the scene. He's just there one night. He just can't wrestle. He's like, people are just talking about this, man. I don't know. I know this, this, and this about the Messiah. But man, I, I, I got to go. And he just gets up in the middle of the night, like finding this guy. He doesn't know. And it's like, was Jesus like sitting there at the table or reclining at the table waiting for Nicodemus to show up? I, in my vision of the story, I'm going, yep. Because Jesus was actually waiting for Nicodemus to show up. Like, that's the way I think about this. And he's there and they have this conversation. How long was this conversation? It takes us three minutes to read it, but I'm willing to bet it probably was an all-night conversation. Rabbi. He's trying to flatter him. Rabbi. Teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God. You're not God, but you come from God. For we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. So God is with you. Like something, something's happening there. And I love what Jesus now says in verse 3. Truly, truly, amen, amen. Let it be according to God's word. Like, this is a strong stance. This isn't like a nice little conversation thing. This is like Jesus going... Okay, I know you're buttering me up. 
I know that you tried to compliment me with rabbi. Let's just get all past this pretense for a moment. Let's pop this hood up. Let's deal with the issue. I'm going to tell you what God says. And here's the truth. And this is what he does. I say to you, I'm saying to you, Nicodemus, this is why you were up tonight. This is why you came after me tonight. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Those be fighting words. Like Jesus loves him so much that he's not afraid to pull punches. Like he's just like, I'm just going for it. You're here. I'm glad you're here. Let's talk. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless one is born again. The check engine light is flashing in Nicodemus' heart. He comes. God is stirring him up. And this is so often how God works. He's doing things in our life. He's stirring us up. Questions are unsettled. Or maybe the life that we're going after or the religion that we're going after is just, is just not doing what we would think. And now we come and we're having this conversation with Jesus. We don't even know what to say necessarily. But he goes right to the heart. That's what Jesus does all the time. In fact, I'm willing to bet that's why I know some of you don't pray. That's why I know some of you don't read God's word because you know he's going to go right to the heart and you don't want to go there. Or is that just me? You know what I'm saying? Like, you just go, whew, I know if I have to pray, he's going to have to talk about that issue. I don't want to talk about that issue. Praise the Lord. Like, he's like, Jesus like, no, we're going to go there. Listen, you got to understand, Nicodemus represents the best of us. I really doubt that there's anyone in this room that's more religious than Nicodemus. Do you have the first five books of the Old Testament memorized? He did. He knew all the laws. He could teach it. He was very, very religious. Very good. Good person. You would want your daughter to marry this man. Like, like he's a good guy. And yet, Jesus says to him, I say to you, unless you are born again, you can't come. In other words, the fig leaf that you have on, the religion that you have on, ain't going to cut it. It ain't going to cut it. Verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born again? He's just deflecting. This phrase, born again, it's not a new statement. Jesus didn't, like, this was, like, a phrase that the Jews would use often when it came to the Torah. Like, if you were to read and understand the Torah, it's like being born again. So, like, he knew this phrase. This wasn't like a brand new phrase to him. He's just like, well, how can one be born again? He's just deflecting. He's being a little bit defensive. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, he's just playing this off. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, let it be according to God's word, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit. In other words, like, you've you got to be born of the water, like natural. But, like, listen, you've got to be born again from above. Like, there's something like, he's got to do it. You can't do it. No matter how good you are, you can't do it. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel. I love that. He's like, like you've got to read this. Like, Jesus is a bold dude. He's like, don't be shocked. I know you're just deflecting. I know you're just playing coy here. Don't marvel that I said one must be born again. You understand this phrase. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is like, listen, 
that check engine light that's flashing, that's me coming after your heart. Do you hear, do you feel me? I'm blowing, the spirit of God is blowing in your life. Do you feel it? Yeah, you might not understand it all. Like it just, this is so beautiful what Jesus does to our lives. Do not marvel that I said this. You should get this. And I love his response in verse nine. How can this be? <laughs> How can this be, Jesus? You, what Jesus just said completely upset the apple cart. You've built your whole life, Nicodemus, off of this religious practice, thinking that by doing all of these things, you will eventually get to heaven and be with God. And now you are telling me, Jesus, that that's not going to happen? How can this be? You ever feel that way? Is it really that simple, Jesus, but yet that complex? Like, really? It's just you? You alone have the words of life. You alone are the living Lord. You alone are the way, the truth, and life. Like, you? How can this be? Look at verse 10. You gotta love it. Jesus answered him. (laughs) Are you not the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't get it? kind of an insult (laughs) like aren't you the one who teaches israel and and yet you don't get it truly truly i say to you we speak of what we know who's the we father son and the holy spirit the trinity just like in the creation account let us let us create man in our the trinity for we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You know this. You've got to look to me. You see, in the Old Testament, this story about Moses and the serpent, the serpents came out and bit a bunch of the Israelites, and they got poisoned, and the only way for them to be saved was to look at the serpent that was put on a staff that resembled a bit of a cross, and that was the only way they would have been healed and saved. And he's just like, that's me. I'm going to be lifted up. You just look to me. God is the one who initiates all of this. John chapter 4. Good thing to study this in your small groups, but in John chapter 4, there's a woman that we know as the woman from Samaria, the woman at the well. And, and honestly, this is why John does this. You've got this religious person who represents the best of us, and in John 4, you have the woman at the well who represents the worst of us. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She has multiple husbands. She's given her body over and over and over. 
She's looking for love. She's covering up her nakedness with relationships. That's the fig leaves that's there. She's confused about how to get right with God. Jesus comes, meets her at the well. They start talking, and he's like, listen, I'm the living water. Again, it's not about what you can do. It's about receiving me. And she deflects, just like Nicodemus deflected. Well, you know, you guys, you Jews say that you worship over here, but we say we worship over here. Which one's right? And Jesus is like, I know the game. I know you're deflecting. Go call your husband. And she's like, uh-oh. Calls it out. Exposes her heart. It's about spirit and truth. It's about me. That's why right in the middle of these two stories is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Verse 18 tells us because those of us who don't believe, which is all of us before Jesus comes, we stand condemned already. He didn't come to condemn us because we're already condemned. He came to save us. Name a religion that says that, that does that. Name another religion that says the best of the best and the worst of the worst. You're both equal. You're both covering yourselves in fig leaves. And those fig leaves aren't doing it. Here's what's beautiful about Christianity. We get to trade in our fig leaves for Christ. All of our efforts to cover up our vulnerability, our nakedness, our fear, our insecurities, all of our efforts to try to be something, try to go after something, all the things that we worship, Christianity says, trade that in for me, for Jesus. My favorite part of this whole story is in John 19. Because Nicodemus at that moment, he didn't follow Jesus, but there's this progression that happened in his life. Because in John 19, after Jesus was crucified and was dead on the cross, Nicodemus and another guy, Joseph Arimathea, went to Pilate and said, can we have the body? Nicodemus is no longer coming out at night right there. Because right there, that ended his career as a Pharisee. You aligned yourself with that person who died on a cross, that anybody would go on the cross, right? They would be cursed. Jesus, you would do that. And plus, you can't touch dead people. He went up. Like, imagine this scene. Imagine how hard this would have been to put a ladder on the cross to go up there to take a corpse off of nails hanging on a tree and then somehow try to take this corpse down that's bloodied and dried like the one who used to be like speaking love and life is now dead like imagine being Nicodemus in that moment covered in the blood of the one he loves lays him down and swaddles him up like a baby it's almost as if Nicodemus is saying you can have it all just just give me Jesus Paul 
great religious leader in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, listen, I came to you in fear and trembling. And the only thing I wanted to tell you, the only thing I had to offer you was, was Jesus. It's Christ crucified. That's it. Can I tell you, this is what my life looks like. This is what your life looks like, apart from Jesus. Crash landing. He came for us to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. That's why we come to church to be reminded of his love so we can learn to love him back and just for our hearts again to come back in the simplicity say I don't want to cover myself with anything else just him just him but Father I thank you that you sent your son I thank you that it is just you That you knew that we would start to determine what we think is right, what is needed, what will bring happiness, what will bring uh, pleasure and, and, and fulfillment in our lives and all of these things because we chose to go our own way, to act like God, to, to think we're wiser than you. But Lord, I ask that this morning, wherever we are at, some of us might have never I've come home and just said, Lord, I, I, I want you. Save me. And there's other of us who've been walking a long time with you, and there's some of us who've been going to church for a long time, and maybe just we just think that just because we go to church and we're good enough, that maybe that's good enough. But just like you told Nicodemus and like you told the woman at the well, you say to us, I tell you, unless one is born again, they cannot enter. That is grace, that is love, that is not arrogance. It is love and mercy. So Lord, would you refine our hearts as a church to fall madly in love with your son, Jesus. In Christ's name.